Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Okay, here we go with another wham-bam episode of question answering, and uh, this is the crisis edition, <laughs> if last week was the viral edition. Anyway, whatever, I'm just kind of goofing around. I know it's rough out there. I know people are having a hard time. I know there's a lot of stress. I know there's a lot of worry and upset and a lot of schedules thrown out, completely out of whack. Kids home who, you know, aren't regularly home and all and everything else in between. And then the stress of, you know, having to deal with the, you know, inevitable problems that are going to occur in all of the ways that we're trying to deal with it, you know, on the, on the meta level, the supply chains, the medical supplies, the hospitals. And I mean, you know, how do you, how do you encapsulate all of that? Well, I try to just say, you know, all of the things that are, that are really making us a little, a little crazy right now, or maybe not crazy. I think that's maybe too harsh a word, but certainly um, uncomfortable. Uh, out of sorts, out of, you know, feeling a little like even a little disassociated with what's going on because it's just so big and unusual and stressful. So anyway, a lot happening right now. I get it. And I want to acknowledge that. So what I'm going to give you this week is a little bit of distraction, a little bit of fun, and a little bit of answers to questions about things, Scientology and otherwise. What do you say? Let's do it. All right, here we go. Matt Sheffer, I noticed that Scientology has a creed, similar to how Christian churches have creeds they recite in their worship services. Who came up with the Scientology creed? When? Was it LRH? Or was it an addition added to Scientology after he died? Are Scientologists expected to memorize or learn this creed the way some Christian churches do theirs? Yes, the Church of Scientology does have a creed, and in fact, I will read the whole thing to you um, in just a moment. The creed of the Church of Scientology was written in 1954 when Scientology was made into a religion and was going for tax-exempt status. This is one of the things that you have to have is a checklist of items that you have to show that you are of a your organization is of a religious nature, and having a creed is one of those points. So that's why there is a creed for the church. I am positive, positive, that if that was not an IRS requirement, there wouldn't be one because Scientologists do not pay attention to or do anything really more than give lip service to this creed. It is not something that is well known or talked about within Scientology, although it's hung up on walls, it's around. And it is, for when, the, when they started doing the Sunday services, I think in the year 2000 is when that started, um, the creed was put out there on video, and they read it now as part of the Sunday service. So that was the first time that I ever saw, and you know, in the the 15 years I'd been doing Scientology up until that point, that was the first time I ever saw anybody talking about the creed uh, of the church, and um, and that was the only place it was ever brought up. Um, of course, if you you know, are talking with somebody outside the church, you might present this as something that this is what we, you know, believe, or this is what we, this is how we act, or this is what we think would be, you know, the best of all possible worlds is represented in the words of this creed. So we might use it that way to talk to people outside of Scientology, but, but we never referred to it in the church. 
ministers in training in Scientology, uh, there's a course you do called the Minister's Course, and the creed is prominently on it, and I believe you memorize the creed as an as a drill or exercise as part of the Minister's Course. So that would probably be the place where most Scientologists would see it, become familiar with it, and that's only for, of course, those guys who are becoming ministers, and you have to be an auditor to become a minister, and it's pretty rare. It's not, it's not a common thing for Scientologists to become Scientology ministers. All right, so here is the Creed of the Church of Scientology, and I thought I would read it to you guys because I thought you would appreciate the irony and straight-up hypocrisy that is represented by these words compared to how Scientologists actually operate. If you, it's almost the case, it's almost true that if you were to take every one of these lines and make it the opposite, that's pretty much how Scientology would actually be dealing with these things. But here's what they say. We of the church believe that all men of whatever race, color, or creed were created with equal rights. That all men have inalienable, right, inalienable rights to their own religious practices and their performance. That all men have inalienable rights to their own lives. That all men have inalienable rights to their sanity. That all men have inalienable rights to their own defense. That all men have inalienable rights to conceive, choose, assist, or support their own organizations, churches, and governments. So long as that's Scientology. That all men have inalienable rights to think freely, to talk freely, to write freely their own opinions, and to counter or utter or write upon the opinions of others. Again, so long as everything you say or write is in full agreement with everything that L. Ron Hubbard or David Miscavige have ever said or written. That all men have inalienable rights to the creation of their own kind. That the souls of men have the rights of men. That the study of the mind and the healing of mentally caused ills should not be alienated from religion or condoned in non-religious fields and that no agency less than God has the power to suspend or set aside these rights overtly or covertly. And of course, at this point, Hubbard hadn't yet said that Jesus is just an implant and there's really no such thing as God, but that wasn't too far along after writing this. And we of the church believe that man is basically good, that he is seeking to survive, that his survival depends upon himself and upon his fellows and his attainment of brotherhood with the universe. Uh, not quite sure how disconnection fits in with that whole brotherhood of the universe thing, but... And we of the church believe that the laws of God forbid man to destroy his own kind, to destroy the sanity of another, unless, of course, you're auditing them, to destroy or enslave another's soul, to destroy or reduce the survival of one's companions or one's groups. And we of the church believe that the spirit can be saved and that the spirit alone may save or heal the body. So you see an awful lot reflected in here that Scientologists actually don't really do a whole lot with or do the exact opposite of. But, you, but I will say that despite the fact that they do all these things that are completely opposite to what they proclaim to believe, 
they still believe that that's what they're doing. And that's the insanity of Scientology. So, thought that might be a nice exercise to walk through that. There you go. Chase Robertson. In what ways are members allowed to use Scientology in an artistic setting? I've heard of songs being written about it, but what if someone wrote a novel about a detective who uses the church to help solve cases? Would that be allowed? Has it been done? I have seen over the years various um, writers, specifically as what I'm thinking of right now, also songs that sometimes mentioned or comes up in songs over the years. Non-Scientologists have mentioned Scientology or referred to Scientology, referred to L. Ron Hubbard. I think the Beatles even refer to Hubbard at one point or St. Hill or something in one of their songs. Um, so there have been non-Scientologists referring to Scientology. I remember a science fiction book one time set in the future where the, the author talked about a roommate who was an orthodox Scientologist, <laughs> which is probably truer than we would like to think is going to happen in the future, right? Because we already have official Scientology and independent Scientology, which has about a thousand different flavors. So uh, anyway, so there's, there, it has been mentioned in those kind of places by non-Scientologists, and of course it's, you know, a, a classic butt of jokes now. But as far as in the world of Scientology, which is I know where you're asking about this, it's not really used directly. It's used indirectly, even by L. Ron Hubbard. All through Mission Earth series, all through Battlefield Earth, there's tons of Scientology concepts and philosophical points all throughout those works. And, um, and I think a lot of Scientologists took their cue or take their cue from Hubbard as to how to go about talking about Scientology, which is that they don't mention it directly. They just fill their stories with all the principles of Scientology. So that's kind of how I've seen Scientologists use this. I think the reason for this is because you might or may not know that back in the 1960s and 70s, there were Scientologists writing about Scientology other than L. Ron Hubbard. There was a woman named Ruth Minchel, famously, who wrote a number of books about science, using Scientology, not fiction books, nonfiction books. Um, there was another uh, couple authors who used Scientology principles in business guides or in, in books about that. But this was all, you know, sort of church sanctioned. And then in the, in the mid to late 1970s, I think, I think early 80s, all of that was pulled. All that was canceled. They no longer had authorization to, to do anything like that. And the way you get authorization for that is it's called, within the church, it's called issue authority. You're given authority to issue this, you know, piece of paper, bulletin, book, pamphlet, essay, whatever. It has to have issue authority. And that means somebody in the church, a, 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 the post is the L. Ron Hubbard communicator or LRH communicator, has to stamp it and, and okay that. And, um, and that's not really given out anymore to non, you know, to outside the church kind of things like it used to be. So I think that's why you're going to see non, or, you know, you're not, not going to see Scientologists who are going to be writing or talking or creating things artistically and putting Scientology directly and by name into the materials. Uh, you're going to see indirect references to it. So I think that whole issue authority thing is, is probably the, the, you know, the, the reason why. Um, and they just, you know, and also there's a fear. Another thing is that there's a fear of joking and degrading.
uh, L. Ron Hubbard was death on that. Like he just like if you're you're literally labeled psychotic if you're found making jokes about Scientology as a subject. So and this and this could easily be morphed into mentioning Scientology at all. I mean, re keep in mind we're talking about a destructive cult here. These are not a bunch of rational people. So. <laughs> You know, so this could spread to, you know, so writing about Scientology, even in any kind of a fictional sense, could be viewed as a kind of degrading of Scientology. If you get anything wrong or you slip up in some way or there's somehow a person could interpret what you wrote in a negative way, then you're going to be in a lot of trouble. So, you know, no Scientologist wants to go through any of that hassle. So they tend to just not do it. That is all my experience. It is entirely possible that in the world of Scientology over the decades it's been around, somebody's done this and I've never heard about it. And so, you know, let me know about it in the comments. I'd be curious to find out. But this was my experience with it. So there you go. Kylie P. I recently found your channel and have been binge watching your videos like crazy in quarantine. You've done some pretty amazing things with your platform. What is, in your opinion, the best experience or opportunity you've had as a content creator? I know you've collaborated with some amazing people and published your book, attended forums, etc. Are there any specific experiences that have impacted you the most or been the highlights of your time as a public figure? If so, what makes these things so special? Okay, thanks for this question, Kylie. Um, First off, I, I, I'm just kind of answering off the top of my head here. I didn't really prepare an answer for this, but I liked the question, and I do have a specific thing I'll bring up at the end, but there's a few other things I'll talk about first. Um, I never imagined when I started this channel years ago that it would grow to this size or that I would be, still be doing this after or, and make it a profession, make it a, you know something I, I do. That alone, just, just having this and being able to do this is itself quite, quite awesome. Um, I'm kind of living the dream in, in, a, in a number of ways here. I'm not exactly financially living the dream, but creatively, uh, you know, I guess artistically, or I guess in terms of my, what motivates me and keeps me going and gets me up in the morning and makes me you know, happy to be doing what I'm doing, this, this work is definitely that most of the time. Definitely has its doldrums, definitely has its difficulties, and some weeks is, are definitely easier than others. But, um, but I would never trade any of what I'm doing here for anything else, as far as I can tell so far, right? I mean, unless I, I, I guess if I got a job as like a Lego engineer, that might be kind of cool. But okay, as far as opportunities go, though, as far as, you know, what, what has this done for me in terms of putting me in a position for things? Well, I have met an awful lot of amazing people. It has also, through the work I've done, been an enormous part of my own recovery and, and reacclimation into the world from Scientology. You know, it's funny, I still talk about this after all these years, like this reacclimation or recovery, like it's still going on, but, but it is. And, and every person I've interviewed, every therapist, counselor, sociologist, uh, anybody really that I've talked to, you know, through my channel has been helpful to me, educating me, helping me deal with certain problems I've had, stuff like that. So, you know, a little selfishness there, I guess, in terms of motivation, but it's been, it's been wonderful for that. Um, I didn't really expect that at all, by the way, as in terms of doing this, I was, you know, talking to these people like Rachel Bernstein, Natalie Feinblatt, um, 
Yanya Lalich, right? Getting these guys on my channel was like, oh, um, I didn't get them on so that they could be my therapist, but it just, that's what happened during the course of talking to them. And of course, when you give examples and talk about things and you're sharing ideas back and forth, then of course stuff's coming up for me. So, um, so that's been an opportunity. Um, traveling and, and going around and meeting people in different parts of the country, different parts of the world, um, and interacting with them, sharing my ideas with them, them positively responding to them. That's, there's not really anything else like that. So I don't know how to explain that except to say that it is very validating. Um, yeah, that's just kind of, that's kind of cool all by itself. Um, but the number one thing that this is going to, and the thing that, this, that opportunity-wise or job satisfaction-wise or opening up doors for me, the opportunity to help other people has been the number one benefit of doing this job. Um, I, I kind of, I kind of really get off on helping other people and I don't, I obviously don't mean sexually. I mean, you know, in terms of morale, in terms of, of, of my world view and, and, and how I look at my life and the satisfaction I get from, you know, what I do with my life, helping people, um, hearing back from them, you know, emails, tweets, social media, whatever in person. Uh, it's harder to describe that feeling than it is to describe the feeling of, of the fact that anybody wants to listen to me in the first place. Um, the helping thing is, is, is for real, like, like bucket list life goal kind of stuff. Like it's really important to me. And, um, and it's really the thing that keeps me going. Sometimes I'll get, you know, I'll be down in the doldrums about something or I'll have somebody you know, who's given me a particularly harsh criticism about something, and then I'll get an email from someone, you know, that tells me their story and tells me how my work has helped them. And these are totally random, you know, they just kind of come in every now and again. Um, and they just make my whole day, they just make my whole week. I mean, it's just, it's a whole different day for me after I find out that I was able to do that for somebody, you know. So, um, so I'm sort of stumbling around here, but I, but I think you get the idea. And that's how this, how doing this work has changed me and, 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 and gives me the satisfaction I, I guess I crave or I'm looking for, or I'm trying to, you know, to, to produce so that I want to keep doing this. <laughs> and, um, and so far it's been great. So there you go. TJ Feeney. This may seem a strange one, but Scientology has sold itself as a religion to the stars. It also has its presence around the home of film and TV in, at Los Angeles. As cosmetic surgery, fillers, and Botox and such is so big in the TV and movie world, what happens when these members get fillers or surgery and such? Scientology teaches that drugs and other substances lodge in the fatty tissues for life. If this is the case, shouldn't every Scientologist be heading back to the purification rundown to sweat out these toxins? And if they do, how do they get over the fact that the sauna or steam room didn't cause the fillers or Botox to magically melt away like every other drug they think they sweat out? Okay, Botox, fillers, etc. This is not something I had a whole lot of experience with when I was in Scientology in the Sea Org. I was in Santa Barbara as a staff member and I... I don't actually recall anybody there that I, you know, getting any plastic surgery or anything like that. 
And then when I was in the Sea Org, I was in management, I was on the Sea Org base a lot, and I saw movie people come and go a couple times, but I don't, I didn't think that any of them had gotten actual plastic surgery. Now, I do think Tom Cruise and I think possibly David Miscavige have since gotten plastic surgery. I never met Tom Cruise when I was in. Um, so, as far as like rich Scientologists doing this or something, I mean, you know, I guess I was trying to think back to, you know, what would my attitude have been about it as a Scientologist or as a Sea Org member. And the Purif thing was not what come what came straight to mind for me. And I didn't think about it in terms of, oh, you've, you know, you got silicon implants or Botox in the lips or the forehead or whatever. Oh, that's that needs to get sweated out. I mean, obviously, they wouldn't be doing it if they thought that that was going to be the result, is that they were then going to go do a Purif again and, and, and somehow get rid of it. Um, I don't think Scientologists, and I certainly didn't even think about it that way. We just, you know, it just doesn't even occur to you. Um, you know, when you think about the pure, if you don't think about Botox and fillers, you think about, you know, paint and lead and drugs and alcohol and stuff like that. And of course, there's, you've already piled so much false data onto the person's head from L. Ron Hubbard about how the, you know, your physiology works that, that they're, they're already not thinking clearly. Then they're in a destructive cult. <laughs> That's more not thinking clearly. You know, so anyway, so I just didn't really think about it very much. However, because this, I, I realized I didn't have a whole lot of experience with it, I did contact a former Scientology friend of mine who was in Clearwater, where I was not, and where there are a lot of rich Scientologists. And she and I talked about this. And she said that she knew a couple Scientologists who had gotten boob jobs or some, you know, not, not really a whole lot else. I think she said that maybe there was one or two other people who might have gotten some surgery, but she wasn't sure. And um, she kind of said the same thing as far as like it didn't really come up that this would be something you'd do a Purif for. But it was kind of like, why would you do that to your body? Like it was a little bit like that was that's kind of weird, you know, because the 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 main attitude about a person's body in Scientology is you want it to be healthy and you want it to be a vehicle that you can use to go up the bridge and do, you know, do Scientology. But, you know, caring for the body, putting all this attention on the body, I mean, Hubbard wrote about how silly that is and how you shouldn't really do that. And, and even caring for it is sort of a haphazard, yeah, just keep it alive long enough to, to do your, your stuff. Now, The Way to Happiness, which he wrote later in 1980, says take care of yourself, brush your teeth, groom yourself, that kind of thing. So it's not like Scientologists totally disregard health. In fact, some of them are quite fanatical about it. Um, you know, it's not like anybody wants their body, you know, just slipshod about it. But it's, if I can get this across somehow, that even, even with that happening, there's still this idea that the spirit is the thing, you know, that's the, the Thetan is the, is the thing. That's what's important is you as a spiritual entity. So people who are vain or put a lot of attention on their bodies um, are kind of looked at a little, you know, a little, really? You, you spent your money on that, you know, kind of thing. Um, you know, you better have your bridge fully paid for before you're going off and getting Botox, right? Like that would be sort of the idea of it. Um, you want to secure that. That's where your money should be going, putting attention on how your body looks. You know, now that all being said, of course, 
Miscavige wouldn't be a hypocrite. Tom Cruise isn't a hypocrite because they're they're in the public eye. They're they're celebrities. They're public figures. So Scientologists would forgive them for you know maybe doing a little touch up here and there. But um, you know, but at the same time, if if uh, if it went bad or went wrong or you know somebody got some Botox injection and it you know broke or went floppy or whatever. Um, you know, Scientologists would be a little bit, well, he was kind of asking for it, you know? I mean, it's that, that would be kind of the attitude about that. So that's what I can talk about with that. I hope that's useful information. Um, and there, there you go. STR. I wanted to ask your opinion on something I've noticed during the current crisis. Many of the world's major religions have shut down holy sites and kept worshipers away. If they really believed, wouldn't they think their gods would protect them? Various Christian groups across Europe have shut down churches and told people to stay away. In Saudi Arabia and Iran and elsewhere, Muslim leaders have shut down holy sites and changed the call to prayer to say to pray at home instead of at mosques. So, since you mentioned how Scientologists in the Sea Org used various methods to try and control norovirus outbreaks, but yet still kept living in the same conditions, and because of your critical thinking approach, I'm wondering if you might have an insight on this. Why do religious people behave this way? Is it cognitive dissonance? Is it compartmentalization? I'm curious to know your thoughts. Okay, well, we are definitely getting a big object lesson right now in fanaticism and extremism on the part of religious believers. And by that, what I mean is that you have a small segment of the religious population not the vast majority of them, still insisting that they go to church, still insisting that they meet. We see the governors of Texas and Florida caving to pressure from religious groups and allowing, saying that religious meetings are essential services, which they are not. But, you know, believers and extremists are going to be extremists. Now, I need to differentiate there. I actually just, you know, believers and extremists, they're not the same thing. I actually shouldn't have put it that way. Extremists are the problem. And those are the ones who are sticking out like a sore thumb now. You see that the vast majority of the world's religious believers actually get that their faith isn't something that's really so real that they're willing to put their life on the line for it. And that's good. That's a good thing because faith is just an idea in your head. It's not armor. It's no shield. It's not going to protect you from anything. But there are people out there who we now see, and I think this was most epitomized by the um, woman who was interviewed just, I think, yesterday or the day before on CNN, driving away from a religious service, I think, in Georgia or Alabama. And she got stopped, and the CNN reporter was like, well, don't you, aren't you afraid of, you know, get catching the, the virus or, 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 you know, and she was like, no, I'm covered in the blood of Christ. I'm, I'm perfectly fine. And, well, what about giving it to other people? Oh, no, they're all good, too. They're all believers, and, and we're all anointed, and blah, blah, blah. If you haven't seen that clip, you might check it out. It's insane. And this woman is looks like a normal woman, looks like this normal, you know, uh, middle-aged uh, woman driving in a car, well-dressed. I mean, she's, she doesn't look like a fanatic. She doesn't look like she's delusional, but she is. She's crazy. And that's what we have in terms of the people who insist on going to church in the face of, 
you know, this global pandemic, where they are literally putting not only their lives, but the lives of other people at risk because their faith is so strong that they actually believe that they are impervious to getting sick in the first place. They might, you know, they think that their faith, and this is Scientologist too, and this is why I can, you know, when I talk about this fanaticism, this is Scientologist. This is whatever Christians, Muslims, whatever, these guys that are still insisting that social distancing is not important, not necessary, and that God will protect them. Or in Scientology, they believe, I'm not PTS, I am therefore impervious to this virus. Remember the creed I read earlier where Hubbard wrote, you know, that the spirit alone may save or heal the body. That's what Scientologists do believe. So they think if, if, if you get sick and die, it's a spiritual shortcoming, not a physical problem. That's what they actually believe. And I, and I extend that, I, that thinking out to these other fanatics. Um, you know, there's a difference between seeking community, seeking support, uh, needing, you know, to, to feel that support, uh, or sorry, I should say wanting to feel that support, wanting that bolster of, you know, common belief, common understanding, community. This is a big, big thing that religion provides for people. But we see that most people get it that, you know, if I need to take a break for a little while because I'm imperiling other people or myself, yeah, I'm willing to do that. Uh, sure, I'll pray, but let's be real. How many times have people prayed? And Christians know this. You know, Muslims know this. Everybody knows this. They're not, it's not like they're all a bunch of idiots. They know that prayers are really just sort of requests, you know, into the wind or, you know, maybe God's listening, maybe not. But how often do people's prayers get answered? Hardly ever. So, and most people know that, right? And they don't take their religion that seriously, Really, at the end of the day, that's really what it, what it comes down to. And again, that's a good thing. You know, having some faith, having some ideas about God and the supernatural or what's going to happen when you die or wanting to lead a good life because God and Jesus said so or this kind of thing. And I got no argument with any of that. There's nothing wrong with that. It's, you know, it's like you mentioned when they take it to this extreme level. And these guys are really, like I said, sticking out like a sore thumb now. So we really are seeing the the crazy from the not crazy in the religious world with this. And I'm very happy about that because like, because because the vast majority of them are not fanatics and are not acting insane. So, you know, so I think that's a good thing because it kind of proves out everything I'm saying here is that, you know, people are not taking their religion so seriously that they're going to, that they're going to gamble their lives on it. Um, so when you see now or when the crisis is over, when you see these people who take this, their religious ideas to that level, like, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses not allowing blood transfusions or Christian scientists not, not allowing any medical treatment of any kind or Scientologists who eschew doctors and, you know, avoid them like the plague for anything, you know, if they can possibly get away with it, you see people whose heads are stuck in the 1800s at best, you know, if not the 17, 16 or 1500s. That's where their heads are at. That's where their thinking is at. And that's, you know, that's extremism. That's, that's fanaticism. So that's, um, we're just seeing it more markedly now, more obviously. It's always been there. And this is what I've been going on about for years. <laughs> so anyway, um, I don't know. Hope that, hope that gives a little bit of insight. I could put more labels on this stuff, but I think the label of fanatic 
extremist satisfies. There's, there could be 10 to 20 different reasons why somebody is a fanatic or has gotten to the place where they are now an extremist. There's a lot of, there's a lot of paths to that headspace. So I could, you know, I could go on about all of those, but I think um, just recognizing them as extremists and beyond any ability to think critically on that subject, right? That's pretty much what extremism is, is you've given up your ability to think critically on that subject on which you're an extremist. It's black and white. It's all true. It must all be this way. There can't be any other possibility. You know, that's the crazy. So when you get to that place, you know, there's not a whole lot else going on for you. And uh, that's pretty sad, you know, but that's the, that's the reality of it. Kim McEff. In The Expert Witness, Jesse Prince mentions inserting R6N words or R6EW into Scientology's legal documents to make the judge feel antagonistic towards Scientology's enemies. In his words, so we are lacing our legal briefs with magic spells against our enemies and this was not a joke. I've googled around and found very little information on R6EW. What can you tell us about this? How are they supposed to work and what are some of these words? Okay, this is the part of the bridge or the, the, the steps of indoctrination uh, into Scientology that are some of the maddest. And actually only a small percentage of Scientologists, although I heard at one point it was getting up in percentage and it might even be up to like, you know, 40, 50% now, but I, I, I don't think so. I think it's still a fairly small number of Scientologists do what's called the alternate clear route. Okay, so there are two ways when you're going up this bridge to total freedom in Scientology, which I've shown you guys many times. You have these steps, you have these levels, and there's a place where you get a bunch of Dianetics auditing called New Era Dianetics, and this was developed in the, in the late 70s. This is Dianetics auditing with an e-meter. It's, you know, it's, it's got its own procedures. You're supposed to do that and go clear on that step. That's how you're supposed to get clear. And most Scientologists get to the state of clear doing that. But some people get through the whole NED New Era Dianetics step, and it's a, it's a series of actions, about 16 different steps on it, um, and they're not clear. They haven't given the clear cognition, uh, which they haven't said the words, I, you know, oh, hey, I'm, I'm mocking up my own reactive mind. I'm creating my own reactive mind. They don't come to that realization for whatever reason, and um, and not really any reason they should. It's all kind of made up anyway. So you know, but anyway, they finish that step. They're not clear. They're going to do this alternate series of steps that not everybody does. The um, the first step is called power and power plus two little steps in one. Uh, which is supposed to deal, it it's, uh, deals with your ability to handle and control and have power. Um, and then there is this R6EW step after that. Um, these are not areas of Scientology that I know a whole lot about because I didn't do these steps and they are all confidential. So all I really know about them is what I've read uh, from all the confidential materials that I've downloaded from the internet. Uh, which gives the procedure and stuff, and it's a, and and 
The thing about it is I just read through all of this before I did this episode, and it's confusing as hell. So, you know, so I can't give you a straight, oh, it's step one, step two, step three, and there you go. And here are the end words. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. You come up with your own end words, <laughs> okay? And, the, and the, 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 short, the shortest possible explanation I can give you for this that'll make the most sense, I think, is L. Ron Hubbard said that not only, for, for those of you who are familiar with what I've said about Dianetics in the past, you have this reactive mind and it contains all the collection of stress and trauma and accumulation of incidents that you've experienced in your past, this lifetime and all the lifetimes and going back all the way to the beginning, that contain pain and unconsciousness. Any incident that contains pain and unconsciousness is stored in the reactive mind, and those are called engrams. Long time, for a long time, most Scientologists thought that's all that was in the reactive mind. But in the 60s, L. Ron Hubbard started talking about this other thing that actually makes up the core of the reactive mind. And this was a new discovery in the 60s. And this, this discovery was GPMs, goals, problems, masses. The, these black masses that make up the, the reactive mind. So, okay, what's a goals, problem, mass? Well, somewhere along the line in your past, you've had a goal to catch criminals, to do good, to, to accumulate wealth through any means possible, to do bad, to destroy people. I mean, your goals could be limitless, but you've had a goal. That goal is opposed, you know, by an opposing goal. If your goal as a, as a law enforcement type goal is to, you know, enforce the law, well, the counter goal is to break the law or to violate the law, or to get rich despite the law, or, you know, you can have lots and lots of counter goals to that. So you have a goal, and the goal is, there's actual, in Scientology, this is all Scientology, okay, I'm not, I, again, I have to always put these little disclaimers in the middle of my things, I'm, none of this is true, okay, I'm just telling you what Hubbard said. So these goals have energy, you, 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 uh, you could spend a whole lifetime, or even a series of lifetimes on one, just one goal, just just going for it. You as a spiritual entity have decided, okay, you know what? I'm I'm I don't want to be a criminal anymore. I want to be a cop, right? I want to I want to enforce the law. I don't want to break the law. So you change the goal. You have this series, you have this goal, you've carried it with you for a long time. You flip it. And maybe this was, you know, 70 million years ago, you flipped it and you had a whole series of lifetimes with the goal to to enforce the law and that goes for so long and you put so much energy into it and you really work at it and it's a life goal and you go through all these lifetimes of this as your primary goal. Of course, you have other goals. You get married, you get kids, you get a job, you know, all the other little things that make up a life. I'm talking primary life purpose type of goal. Big deal. So you have that. Then Hubbard said at some point along the line, it flips again. And it flips back and forth and back and forth. And then, or you might adopt a whole new goal. So you go from a cop to a robber, to a cop, to a robber, to a cop, to a robber. You see the, it flips. Or you go from, you know, soldier to saint, to soldier to saint. Or, you know, um, president to, you know, guy in the street, poor homeless person, right? You know, leader, follower, leader, fo you know, like, like down in the bottom. Um, 
there are these opposite ideas is the idea of this. So you got the goal and you got the counter goal, which is, which is the opposition you run into during that lifetime or series of lifetimes because you're going to be opposed by criminals. Let's say you're a cop. Um, and, the, and there's energy that builds up because of that resistance in your reactive mind. And this, and this goal causes mental mass and accumulation to build up because of all the, you know, spiritual energy, I guess, you're feeding into this. I mean, really, don't ask me too many deep questions about this because there are no answers. This is just, this is exactly how Hubbard asserts this stuff. So uh, you can't really go a whole lot deeper. It's like, well, what's creating the energy? And where is it stored exactly? And what kind of energy? And could you measure it? You know, don't, don't even bother with any of that. <laughs> Hubbard didn't. <laughs> okay, so. Uh, <coughs> so the idea is that this energy mass is called a GPM, a goals problem mass, because it's a problem. You got a goal, somebody else is opposing your goal, that's a problem for you and it creates this mass. Okay, I think you get the idea. The mass accumulates in your reactive mind over lifetimes and lifetimes and over the trillennia you have existed. You've got hundreds, maybe thousands of these things accumulated in your reactive mind that sort of form the, the, the fundamental basis of your reactive mind. So this is the step where you start addressing those GPMs. And R6EW has something to do with that because these end words, the words have to do with the wording of your goals. <sighs> okay, so like I said, it gets a little confusing and I could be a little off on this. I'm only interpreting these materials that I've read. But the way I understand it is that you, on this step, you start, there's, a, there's questions you ask yourself, like what, I think, I think it's like, what am I dramatizing? Uh, meaning, what, what are you pulling out of your bank and, and, and acting on? Um, so you have all these goals stored there, and this would be the question that would lead to getting to what those goals were. Um, so, like, for example, if you had a goal to enforce the law, well, the end word of that goal is the word law. That's a noun. It has to be a noun. End words have to be nouns, right? Goals have to be action noun, right? So, again, according to Hubbard. So, you know, to pursue criminals might be a goal. So criminals is the end word. And the opposite end word of criminal would be cop, right? This has to be opposites, oppositions. So the, so the opposing end word for criminal might be cop. The opposing end word for fat would be thin, the opposing end word for, you know, black would be white, right? Um, always opposites. Not just a different idea, but an actually opposite idea. And you figure out what these end words are at the first step of this R6CW and uh, write these things down. And then you're going to do solo auditing. So you're going to be auditing yourself to... Um, address these end words using Scientology, you know, the Scientology sort of process and to sort of, you know, pop them out. And what this is supposed to do is sort of relieve some tension and, and some surface charge and, and sort of, you know, get some of the black energy out of these GPMs, these goals, problem masses that are making up, the, again, the core of your reactive mind. 
So you've gone below the engrams and the and the you know the the moments of pain and unconsciousness, and now you're getting to the real cement of the reactive mind. That's what this is all about. And then you continue on this step, and then you do the next step after you finish the R60W step. Then there's a step called the clearing course, and you're going to dive in and and really start taking these things apart. Um, that's how I understand it. You know, if I'm completely wrong about this and I've misunderstood all of the Scientology materials on this matter, uh, maybe somebody who has done this stuff can, can explain it in the comments or write to me about it. Um, but that's how I understand this process to work. And yeah, it's pretty weird. I mean, I, like I said, everything I just gave you was the simplest way I could think of to explain it. Um, you know, so when he talks about throwing these end words into... Um, legal documents to upset judges. I mean, this is just magical thinking nonsense. Judges probably skimmed over and went, that makes no sense whatsoever, and just moved right on. But Scientologists thought that, you know, maybe some of the more common N-words, or maybe at a later step in the in the thing, there are some pat N-words that were given out that everybody's supposed to have. Like, maybe everybody's got the goal to, um, you know, live a sunshine life or something, right? So life is one of the is one of the uh, end words that when we just know that's going to be one of the end words, uh, according to what Hubbard said. So that would be one of the things you would list. So, you know, like I said, this is all pretty nonsensical stuff, but I think I gave you a good enough idea, a glimpse at it to, to get kind of how, how nuts it can get. So there you go. All right. And that is our show for this week. Thank you very much, guys, for coming around. And I want to say, Thank you especially again to my Patreon supporters and those of you who can possibly become one of them. I would really appreciate it. This is a tough time for everybody. I definitely get that. Um, you know, we're not having a great time with YouTube again right now, and we're, we're working on that. There's not a lot of humans there, and demonetization of our videos um, is happening a lot more frequently. Um, I say our because I'm referring like to Lloyd Evans, who's a, a fellow YouTube creator one of the three apostates, and he is on a tear about this right now because his uh, one of his most popular videos that has nothing really super controversial in it just got demonetized, at, at, you know, well after it's been out for months and had over a million views. So that's, that's pretty, that, that's kind of harsh because as a YouTube content creator, you know, when you get videos that start getting real views like that, that, that actually does produce some income. And uh, YouTube just cut him off at the knees, cuts me off at the knees all the time on stuff. So it's a problem, and we're trying to deal with that. So, um, you know, that's why Patreon is so important. That's why your support for us is so important. And, um, and that's just the reality of the situation. So anyway, thanks for listening. Thanks for coming around and watching. I really appreciate your time and attention. And uh, please do send me any questions. Uh, to my email address, askchrisshelton at gmail.com, and I will get it in the question queue. I did lose a bunch of questions that I've been accumulating over the last many months. So if you did send me a question and you really want it answered, please send it to me again um, because I, I don't have it now. I, I, like I said, I lost about the last seven months. Most of the questions I've been getting, I've just gotten or I'm pulling from months ago. All right. Thanks again, guys. See you soon. Bye-bye.